So good morning, everybody. So la- last week, if you weren't here, I'm just going to briefly talk about what, um, what I said last week, because today is, is an extension of that. Um, last week, I let you all know that I've had a burden that I sense is from the Lord, that he wants us to prepare for folks outside our church that he is seeking to bring to us by paying more attention to the people who are in our church now. Like that, that's this burden I've had for, I think, a couple of months. And if you want to know more about that burden, you can listen to last week's message. Um, but, but, but that's the burden, that, that God is seeking to prepare us for people. And it's funny because <laughs> I feel like in the last two months, we've seen more new faces you know, than, than I'm used to seeing in the last several months before. So I'm like, wait, Lord, <laughs> wait up. <laughs> um, but, but that's that sense I've had, that the Lord is trying to prepare us for folks to come in from outside our church. And the way he's trying to prepare us for that is by calling us to pay more attention and more love and more care to the people who are inside the church. And, but as I explained last week, any burden or prophetic word we might sense, it always has to be evaluated by the word of God. God's word, written word, from the apostles that he appointed as authoritative over our burdens, our prophecies, our visions, dreams, senses of anything. It's those things that we have to take before the Lord. Now, of course, if, s- <laughs> if someone comes up to you and says, I feel a burden that um, I should be praying for you more, <laughs> you know, and you're like in a trial, you, you don't have to be like, is that from the devil? <laughs> like he's up there like, pray for Donna, <laughs> that she'd be more Christ-like. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't have to like wonder about that because that's probably not the devil. Um, but it, it's a weird thing that, for me in my experience to have a pastor come up and do a sermon based on you know, a, a sense of a prophetic word he's had. And so what I wanted to do last week was to locate that burden in scripture, to locate the sense of what I was having w- with the principles of God's word. And so last week we looked at John 17, specifically verse 21, when Jesus says his prayer is that we would all be one. And he says, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, speaking to the, his whole church, may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you see that, right, last week? Jesus' prayer for our oneness has its end in, like our real love for each other, our real unity, our real, our real caring for each other and looking out for each other, not fake just for something else, love, like not I'm gonna pretend to care about you so that I can get a bigger church, but real care for each other convinces Jesus says he's praying that, the, that through that the world would see that and believe that God sent Jesus. And then he says it in 1723, I in them, all of Jesus inside us, and you and me, so that they, Jesus says, may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We also saw that in John 13 in a different way. A new command I give to you, love one another. Here Jesus isn't just praying God would do it, he's telling us to do it. He says, I have loved you, so you must love one another that way. And then he says in verse 35, that famous verse, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. People will really know that you're believers and that this is a real thing if you love one another if you lay down your lives for each other. And so we saw in these passages that God uses our unity and our love for one another to convince the world that Jesus is really God and really from God. And, and that's the sense that I had, that our 
being a witness to those people who will come into our doors, whether they're saved and needful of a church or whether they don't know the Lord at all, our witness is, is, is to some great degree a function of our caring for each other in this church. And that's the purpose of any local church is to love each other so well that they would be a light to those who need him, who are outside of it. Now today I want to double down on this idea and I want to focus on a passage of scripture that resonates so powerfully with what we saw last week and that is Philippians 2. And, and I'm actually going to do something a little bit crazy. I'm going to go through all of chapter 2. I'm going to try not to spend a ton of time on every single passage. We'll be here for days. I'm going to try to show you how beautifully um, cohesive and unified Philippians 2 is in, in this idea of loving each other from Christ's love leading to a witness to the world. Before I do that, would you guys please pray with me that Jesus might show himself to you this morning through his word and through my preaching. Pray with me, please. God, please help open up our eyes to your word. Lord, please help me to honor your word. Help me to let your word do its work and not try to uh, force it, not uh, dishonor it, and um, put the burden on me, but let the burden be on your word and my, my attempts to be faithful to it. I pray your Holy Spirit would convict us through these truths of what we need to be convicted of today. I pray, Lord, we would feel your love. We would see your glory. We would experience your presence. We would, we would be exalted by the humbling of your word today. We would be lifted up to you as your word, Lord. Um, humbles us. Lord, I, I, I pray we would be, Lord, we would, in a spiritual sense, enjoy almost being made nothing by your word today and, and ha- because you're just so huge and you're so beautiful in it that it sweeps away other things to think about, other things to be caught up in. It gives us a vision for pursuing you because we, we've seen how beautiful you are. That, that like the man who found the pearl of great price, you say in his joy, he went and sold everything he had. Not in legalism or fear or um, it was in his joy because he saw how beautiful you were that he saw he went and sold everything he had. Would you give us that today? In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. So I've, I've broken this up into like five headings. Um, the glorious command, the glorious example, the glorious power source, the glorious effect, and the glorious miracle. Everything about this is just glorious. So I, I used that word and I just put it on every single heading. So just, you guys get to deal with that. I just looked at this and I've been convinced uh, looking at this for a few days, this is just glorious. Like it's just like, it's just so beautiful. So I hope God will communicate that to you as well. Okay, starting in the first, verse one through four. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, 
but also for the interests of others. This is the glorious command. This is the the command that everything else in this passage flows out of. Paul's imploring them, "If, if, if you've tasted something of Jesus in your midst, if there's any encouragement, it may not be total, it may not be everything you want it to be, if there's any consolation and comfort, if there's any fellowship in the spirit, if you find compassion and some measure and affection in your midst and you sense it's spirit birthed and spirit sustained, he's saying that is Jesus at work. That's the Holy Spirit working in your midst. You can know him that way. Like you can mark it that that's him. Now now he's saying push into that. Fan that into flame. He says make my joy complete by walking with that spirit as he's walking you into these things. As he's walking you into unity. So walk after him. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. One purpose. Paul is commanding in Philippians 2 here what Jesus was praying for in John 17. Unity in truth and love. Unity around the truth of Jesus. See him together, understand him together, and let that true seeing, that true understanding, lead you to love and pour yourselves into one another. Because that's what, when you really see Jesus, when you really see him, that's what happens. That's what the Spirit provokes you to do. But we're not automons. You know, we're not like, I see Jesus, I will love now. Along the way, you consciously make these decisions. Your affections are stirred and you respond to these affections. And he's saying, go, go, go. And then he says, intent on one purpose. What's the one purpose? To please Jesus. To please Jesus. To love him in in our love for each other. And and he's he's explaining what is that really going to look like? What would it look like to be united around Jesus? To have the same mind about who he is, how beautiful he is and glorious he is. What would be the effect of that? we pushed in that and here it is it would be this do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of others that's what it would look like if the 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 truth about jesus was grabbing hold of our minds and and in light of that truth, we were trying to make the next logical movement. <laughs> like understanding Jesus this way, the next thing I should do would be this thing. Okay, and let me try to explain this. How does the truth about Jesus and being united around that truth about Jesus, how does that so stand against selfishness and arrogance and empty conceit and self-promotion and entitlement mentality? Because that's what he's saying. When you get Jesus, it opposes selfishness, empty conceit, self-promotion, entitlement, telly. How does it necessitate humility of mind? What is it about him and his truth and seeing him as he really is that requires humility and selflessness and not arrogance? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's what the gospel tells us. When we consider in the gospel what we deserved versus what we actually receive. 
when we consider what Jesus actually deserves, but what he actually receives, it's impossible for entitlement to logically have its roots in our craw. It's impossible. It is very hard for entitlement to have its sway in the sense that we're owned by it and dominated by it. The idea that we need to react to every slight and push back with desperate conviction of every injustice when wronged when we consider what we really deserved versus what we really get. What we really deserved, what I really deserved when I don't like the way my kids are treating me, my wife's treating me, when I don't like the, the way that guy in traffic is treating me, when I don't like the way that someone's responding in the church to me and, and, and the meanness, the, the core of who I am gets offended and fearful and anxious and hurt, when I step back and say, what do I really deserve? I really deserve everlasting shame. That's what the word of God tells me. In my failing to love God with all of my heart and put him first, I deserve everlasting shame. I deserve eternal destruction. This is God's word. You deserve, I don't know your lives, I just know God's word. You deserve everlasting shame. You deserve everlasting destruction. You deserve the resurrection of the damned, which is going to happen. You deserve whatever metaphor or literal it means by the flames of hell. You deserve, I deserve, weeping and gnashing of teeth without a peaceful resolution, ever, ever, ever. We deserve being consigned to the outer, outer darkness where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, Jesus says. That's what we deserve. So when that guy cuts me off in traffic or that person doesn't show up for the appointment that they made or the person I wanted to do this ministry thing doesn't do this ministry thing and I feel abandoned or, you know, I need to go back to the gospel. What do I deserve? Now, now listen, there are qualifications I need to make here. We, we can take this too far. The Bible calls us not to be doormats in one sense. The Bible calls us not to throw our pearls to swine, metaphorically. Jesus says, don't give the dogs what is sacred. Paul says, warn a divisive person once, then twice, then have nothing to do with them. If you're in an abusive situation with a spouse, God calls you to get help. If you're in a dangerous situation with a spouse, God calls you to get out of that situation, at least temporarily, until you can find it to be a safe situation. So there are qualifications here. Paul isn't saying, in some codependent person worshiping way like let yourselves be conquered by the fear of people but but he is saying what he is saying in place of entitlement and arrogance and selfish conceit consider have the mind of being united in the truth of jesus and let that inform your attitude you deserve eternal suffering and your what god gives you is eternal forgiveness everlasting sonship or daughtership. You are now his child as a free gift. You now have salvation as a free gift. You now have the never-ending embrace of your heavenly father as a free gift. You now have the unending affection and care and commitment and protection 
of personally of your husband redeemer, Jesus Christ, who right now is thinking and pleading and interceding for you right now. That's what you get now. And so he's saying, if all that is true, what room is there for entitlements? And a sense of, I deserve this, or how dare you, quiet or loud. I mean, I, I just, I mean, I'm serious. Like, I've been thinking about my words to my wife, my conduct in traffic <laughs> in a new way. since so I've been looking at this, my disappointments in ministry. Paul says, instead of arrogance and selfish conceit, don't just look after your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. He takes it one step further, scary, hard, regard them more important than you. Oh man, I'm still trying to grapple with that. It doesn't mean they're better than you. It doesn't mean regard them better than you in the sense that I just know that, that I'm a piece of poop and they're amazing. It means consider them that way for love's sake. It doesn't mean, listen, it, it doesn't mean this, and, and no offense to Sanitation workers. I'm going to use the old phrase garbage man because, you know, but, but listen, if you're equipped to be president of the United States, however you conceive of him being the greatest president, I'm not trying to make a move for Trump or whoever, Obama, whatever. I'm just saying if, if you are tri like actually equipped to handle the responsibility well of being president of the United States, it doesn't mean instead go be a garbage man and let the person who's equipped simply to be a sanitation worker let, let them be president of the United States. That's not what he's saying. It means if you're equipped to be the best president of the United States possible, go be that for the sake and the welfare and the concern of the garbage man. Does that make sense? If God's giving you the gifts to be the executive officer of the United States of America, <laughs> go do that for the sake of those people who can't do that well. It means do what Jesus did. Jesus, better than everyone, more important than anyone. He regarded your interests as greater than his own. And he laid down his life for you. How do I know that? Well, just go back to the word of God that we're in and see if maybe I'm onto something here. The next verse in Paul's passage here, part two, the glorious example, the glorious example He's going to unpack why we should have this unselfish, unconceited, interested in others' welfare mindset. Have this attitude <clears throat> in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Oh, this is so beautiful. And I feel affected by it, which is a miracle, you know, because I, I can be a very hard-hearted person. Folks, this is the nature and the heart of God. Listen to who your God is. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Lord, make us see this. Make us see your beauty. But emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the first portion, the glorious command, call, Paul had told us to have the same mind Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, he asked that our oneness, our unity would be the same as his oneness and unity with the Father. And here, Paul pulls back the curtain and gives us the most beautiful picture of what that mind is that we're supposed to be one with. What that attitude of heart is that we're supposed to be one with. The most beautiful picture of what that oneness is the character of that oneness is supposed to be, it looks like the mind of Jesus in this passage. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he became a man and he humbled himself and took the form of a slave and laid his life down for, out of love for you and for me. He didn't hold on to his rights and say, you know, instead of exalting him in, in, in a way he was justified to, if anyone was justified to, to stay in heaven in blinding glory and enjoy whatever pleasures, uninterrupted, unhindered, that are beyond our understanding, whoever, whoever had that right to all glory and exaltation and honor and dignity and, and the most loving treatment, Instead of asserting those rights to that and those entitlements to that, instead of regarding just himself and thinking about just himself, justly, all he deserved and holding on to heaven's throne as God, which is his right. And, and we don't have that right. <laughs> but he had that right. He, he, he wouldn't have been sinful to hold on to that right and to not come down and be with us. He... He had that right, but he didn't fight for that right. He didn't grab on it and say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's, how dare they? Do they know who I am? Or even just like, what's their deal? He let those rights go so that he could save you and love you. He didn't stop being God, but he didn't fight and demand to have the glory that he deserved and the treatment he deserved. He moved into our world to take on what he didn't deserve, our sin, our punishment, our hell. He didn't grasp at his God rights. He became a servant. He humbled himself. He humbled himself to death. And for that time, perhaps the most painful, most shameful, most humiliating, unimaginable death, crucifixion that existed. He did that for you and for me. We weren't more important than Jesus, but he acted like we were. We aren't more important than him, but on that day, on Calvary, he acted like we were.
in some contexts, you may not, you know, they, they may not be more important than you. But Jesus says, act like they are. I did for you. This is the path he invites us to. And, and then it says here, because he did this, God exalted him to a place higher. And I, I don't understand all this, but I think it has something to do with the fact that Jesus has been exalted to a place higher. And our understanding, at least, than we could have conceived of him apart from this demonstration of humility and great love. I, Jesus didn't become worth something more than he was before he came down. Who, who he was when he came down was always there. It just showed up in that context. But when he went back up to heaven, there's a sense in which because he went through that, we see him exalted even more than we could have before the cross. Sin has, has not only been taken care of, it has now served to exalt God even more than if we had never sinned. But listen, this exaltation, and I, I want to be careful here, it is also part of the path that he has for us, as well as our humbling and our suffering, he has exaltation for us. He has, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The path of dying is a path to experience true life. The path of losing our lives to follow him is the path of finding our true lives and our joy in Jesus. Our flesh tells us <clears throat> that if we fight for our own glory, our flesh tells us that if we fight for getting our own way, if we, if we, if we fight for our self-promotion, we will survive. And we have to do that. But Jesus says there is only death there in the end. And he tells us that true love, true joy, true fulfillment, even in this life now with suffering, is found in, for his sake, putting aside selfish conceits, and considering each other more important than ourselves. And at the end of this earthly life, without suffering, there will be an exaltation in God's presence that I believe we can't imagine. Do you know that the scriptures do say that we will have a glory? Paul said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a crown of glory. I, I don't know that he literally metaphorically meant a crown, but, but he meant something, a radiating that he, he, he didn't quite understand of being perfected in love by Jesus and being beautiful now. I mean, if we saw Paul, we would just say, like, you are beautiful. I mean, we would have said that then, right, reading these letters. But if we saw him now, we would say, boy, you are a beautiful man. Your heart is gorgeous without any blemish. And it would, you know what the glory would be? It would be the glory of someone who just loves Jesus so much, loves God so much, is so selfless, is so generous, is so kind. But that's coming later. <laughs> right now, we may not look like that to others the way we hope we would. We, right now, we might, in, in serving others, we might end up feeling and being invisible in some contexts. But we're not invisible to God. He sees what the world doesn't see. And on the last day, there will be a glory and honor that we will possess that will make the glory of the president or <laughs> the presidency <laughs> There's no way to just get all polarized talking about, but the glory of the king of England, it will look like the glory of a garbage man. It will pale in such comparison. <clears throat> a glory of love, though. Verse 12, moving on to the glorious power source. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Respond to his promptings, his leadings, his word, because he's working in you. He's living in you. Listen, I never truly saw the context of this passage until I prepared for this this message. It's a really like powerful and an intriguing passage. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you. And until I studied this passage this week, I'd always isolated that command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who works in you. I've always isolated it from everything in Philippians 2. You know, that's a dumb way to read the Bible. <laughs> when you see a verse and you just deal with that verse, you can't, you gotta look at it in the context. A lot of times what something means, same words in two different places changes, but you, you get a lot of clues if you look at the words around it, you know? And you know, I can preach that to you guys, but I've known this passage, Philippians 12 through 13, for tons of years, but I've never seen it like I saw it this week. Notice the context of what Paul is saying around this phrase, work out your salvation. It's the call to love one another. It's the call to lay our lives down for one another. I think, I hope, I pray there's something really beautiful here for you guys to get that maybe you haven't gotten before because I didn't get it before. So please try to follow me in this, okay? Paul says, work out your salvation. Now, I, I want to just cut to the chase. He's not saying work for it. He's saying work it out. Work, work what's in you outward. Salvation is in you. Work it outward. Okay? But the context is in loving one another. It's not in being a good boy. It's not in being the, the best quiet time guy. You know, it's not in tithing the most. It's in loving one another for Jesus' sake. A and listen, this, Lord, I hope this is good and I hope people get it. I think it is good. <laughs> Please. This character in Christ Jesus that Paul just got done exalting, this mindset of Christ, of loving sacrificially, this is the very heart of God, okay? That is the nature of God. Everything Jesus did, he said, you see the Father doing in me. It's not like Jesus is the sacrificial one and God is the big exalting one wanting all his glory. No, they are the same heart. And guess what your salvation is? Your salvation is being restored to that mindset. Your salvation is being restored to that mindset which was in Christ Jesus because that is the care, the character of God at his core. That is the image of God. The most glorious image of God is laying his life down for you. Your being saved is being saved to that image. <clears throat> Your salvation, if it was a box that we could open, 
that Christ purchased for you by his blood, if you opened that box of, if it said, Ryan Selesky salvation from Jesus, if it said Nancy Margaret salvation from Jesus, if it said Donna's salvation from Jesus, for all of us, if we opened up that box and we looked inside that box, what would be inside that box? The image of Jesus Christ in you, restored to you perfectly. Inside that box would be the life of Jesus Christ, not just given for you, but becoming your very heart and your very life. His character, his heart, his mind reproduced in you. That is what salvation is. That is a person being saved. That is not how a person gets saved. They get saved by him laying down his life for you, but that is what they're being saved to. That is their salvation. The heart of a person so in love and consumed with Trusting and depending on God the Father that we, you pour your life out for others. That's what salvation is. When Paul says then, work out your salvation, that's why it's in the context of this picture. He is saying, work out this salvation that I've just been talking about, this mindset. This is what you were rescued to be. I may not be closing this deal with your brains on this. Romans 8 says it this way. Romans 8 says the exact same thing. Listen to what Romans 8 says. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has a purpose for you. It's one major purpose in Romans 8. All the stuff that happens, he calls, he elects, he predestines, he justifies, he glorifies. It's all for this one purpose, he says. All things are working for this one purpose in your life. What is it? He says it with the very next breath. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That emptying of himself, laying down his life for you, is the image of his son. That is what he is committed passionately to create in you and will make you suffer anything you need to suffer to get you there. This is what's under your salvation wrapping paper, looking just like Jesus. What is our salvation to work out? Paul just told us. God became a servant and laid his life down for you and I, and so that's what you were being saved to be, to be and do. Listen, if you're not that interested in, in that salvation, if you want salvation from hell, but you don't want to be conformed to the image of a servant like Jesus was, you are not really interested in what salvation is. Because salvation is Christ-likeness. And, and a lot comes with that. Joy, everlasting, comes with that. Because that is the salvation of a person who's crazy about God beyond all measure. And you know what's so beautiful about this? It, it, it tells us so much about the bigger picture of, of what's happened to man. Like that image, that image that Paul just said, he laid down his life, he became a servant, though he was God. That's the image of God that we have fallen so short and far from. That is the image we have perverted and twisted. And, and because of that, God's wrath is on the world. 
See, we were never meant to be image bearers, primarily in some of the popular ways we think about God when we think about God. We think about God being omnipotent. We think about God being omnipresent. We think about God being omniscient. We think about God being the source of all things. We were never meant to be his image bearer as the source of all things. You will never be the source of all things. But what is most glorious about God? When Jesus said on the night before he was betrayed and crucified, he said, now the son of man will be glorified. At the center of what is most glorious about God is his heart of pure, holy, selfless love. If he was omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and he was a God of selfishness and not a God of love, there would be a kind of glory, but it would be a dreadful glory. The glory he has is beautiful. So when Romans 3 says we have all fallen short of the glory of God, doesn't mean we we fell short of his omnipresence. Dang it. I fell short of being the source of all things. No, it's saying you fall short of love. You fall short of agape, holy, sacrificial love. And you became a self-worshipper. I mean, I just think we are so much more wrecked than we understand. Like if, if Adam and Eve had never fallen, we tend to think of like beautiful gardens and beautiful animals we get to talk to and maybe we'd get to fly. It, maybe. But the thing that would be most blinding about it would be just how, much, how loving everybody would be. How kind, how patient, how tender, how sympathetic. And that's what God is restoring in us. But, but, but by perverting that image in our fall, we've lied about God to the world and each other. We've concealed the truth of his glorious selfless love in our sin. And that's made God very angry. But how did he respond? In keeping with the core of his character. He forgives, he loves, he gives everything up to save those who will trust in him. There's a great anecdote I heard about what hell is. It's a total metaphor, this is not in the Bible, but there's something effective about it. The the metaphor is this. Hell is a group of people at a dinner table with the most delicious food you could imagine before them on a nice plate with a perfect fork and, and knife and spoon at the ready. They're all sitting there at the table with the most delicious food you could ever imagine God put before them. But they've got no elbows. Have you ever tried eating or imagine trying to eat with no elbows? Like sitting down before a Big Mac? Or, you know, you just, it would be impossible. Spaghetti, it doesn't matter what it is. You can't do it without elbows. (laughs) The only way you could eat at this table is if you fed the person on your side and they fed you. If you had a heart to serve the other person and they had a heart to serve you, you could eat to your heart's consent. But in this picture, the heart is so selfish. Even though they could do it, 
They have no elbows. They must depend on each other. They must serve each other. But because they're so selfish, they starve to death with the food right in front of them. Paul says, don't let that selfish part of you that wars in you, that's gonna war in you until Jesus comes back, don't let that steal you away from salvation. Because it's not who you are. That's not what I just got done telling you, the effect of what Jesus did to come down and get on that cross for your sins. It's had a glorious impact on you. God now lives in you. So work out what's in you. And do it with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? I, I don't understand everything about this. I've read various things. But I, I think there's different parts of it. I think, number one, there's a trembling. Because, <laughs> and I will get to the awe of God and the fear of God, but I think that's at the core of this. That, that this is a serious thing we're involved in. This, this working at our salvation with fear and trembling, it requires focused attention on the needs and care of others. If it's going to happen, it requires a, a fear of the Lord. It requires seeing him, seeing that he's beautiful, paying attention to who he is. It requires a reverence and esteeming of him that you keep looking at him and you keep entrusting yourself to him, trusting that he's sovereign so that you can lay your life down, believing that he will take care of you because he meant for you to care about yourself. He meant for you to both care about yourself and lay down your life for others. And you can't do that unless you believe he's gonna take care of you. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't saying it's so bad to love yourself in that sense. He's saying, God wired you to love yourself. He, he meant for you, he meant, Adam loved himself. He took care of himself, he fed himself, he wanted enjoyment. He want, and that's not evil. It's evil when it becomes all... It, it's evil when it abandons the other and exalts the self at the expense of the other. So Jesus is saying, I'm going down a trail I don't need to. I, 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 this is a difficult thing to do. And so it requires trembling. It requires working. It requires fear of the Lord. It requires trusting in his power and might. It, it, it requires seeing and believing the warnings about the cost of sin and falling away. It's going to make you tremble if you're gonna fight this battle. It's gonna be a daily battle. It's gonna require suffering, and nobody wants to suffer. I do not want to suffer, but consider the encouragement. He says, this is, this, you wanting to do this, even this morning, if you're listening to this and, and you want to do this more, it's God in you wanting to do it more. It, he's working in you, and not just that, Paul says something much more. He's not just hinting and trying to lead you. He is your power source to do this, this Jesus who loves selflessly, he lives in you. The almighty God of the universe is in you. He is for you. He will be your strength as you give yourself to this. You know, if you're a sailboat and you raise the sail of looking out for the interests of others, not just your own, he will blow into that sail and make your little boat go. These impulses that you have to love and sacrifice that you censor from him, the leading of his spirit to serve and care and give out of reverence for him and they're not some warped desire to find your hope in a person but they're expressions of the Lord in you, living and doing his work. He is in you and he is working 
to will in you. He is at work to get you to want to do what he wants, to get you to want to care about and love other people, to get you to want to apologize to your husband or your wife, to get you to want to be a little bit more patient with your child, to be, get you to want to show up when you said you were gonna show up to serve in that thing you told them you'd serve in, to get you to, to want to put away fears about what might happen to you if the church doesn't go the way you hoped and hold the people before the Lord for me and not be a prisoner to the size or the destiny of this particular organization. And Paul tells us, if God is in us and for us, how can we be conquered? How can we be destroyed in this attempt to walk in Christ's likeness, even though we fail and stumble, and we will fail and stumble? God's in you. You will be more than a conqueror because God's in you working this stuff, working in you to want it, working in you to do it. Verse 14, the glorious effect. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding out the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is the glorious effect. What is the effect if humility? What is the effect of humility that sees that it deserves hell but does not, reserve, does not receive hell? But receives heaven. What is the effect of humility that, that understands that it deserves nothing but punishment for its sin. But is receiving forgiveness and lavish grace from God. What is the effect of, of a kind of selfless love ruling our hearts? What is the effect of considering one another more important through depending on Jesus because it's so hard, but pushing into that and doing it? What is the effect? It is a lack of grumbling. It's gotta be a lack of grumbling. It's, it's gotta be, you know, whatever you think about C.J. Mahaney, he had this saying, I just loved it. You know, and some of you guys know this saying, he would go into a Starbucks and somebody would say, how you doing? And he would say, better than I deserve. <laughs> better than I deserve. I love that. That is just, that's a great attitude to have. It's hard to grumble when you realize that you're being treated better than you deserve all the time. What's it lead to? It leads to a lack of division. Because you're not grumbling against each other. You're not petty. You're not small. You're working for each other. It's hard to be divided when you sense the person loves you. It, you know, it, it's, it's just harder, it's not impossible, it's just harder to be angry at someone and offended with someone when you're really interested in their good. It's not impossible, you can be angry and not sin, but it makes all the difference when you have to correct someone, or rebuke someone, when you know in your heart there's just an interest in them. It's gonna make a difference in how they're gonna be able to hear it, hopefully, but I think very likely. When you're, you're you know, Jesus, this, this picture of unity and love and laying down lives, it doesn't mean uh, conflict-free life. Jesus had a lot of conflict with his best friends. You know, he had to do a lot of correcting rebuking. We're, we're called to correct each other. But if the spirit behind us, the engine behind it is, I'm, I'm trying to help you. I, I really care about you. I really want to lift you up. It's going to inform our tone. It's going to inform our timing. It's going to inform our words. And if we can hear that, in their voice, it's going to inform our response. And to the twisted and crooked generation, Paul says around us, not very politically correct. <laughs> That's how Paul 
views the world without Christ, twisted and crooked, we increasingly look right. Even earlier in chapter one, if he says, it's a hint to them deep down inside of their coming destruction, he says. He says, when you live in a life worthy from the gospel, it will attract some people. It will be the aroma of Christ and will be drawn in. To others, it will be the aroma of death. It will be a reminder that they are going to be destroyed unless they turn. Because deep down inside, they see the image of God growing in you and they know that's what they're meant for. We look blameless and innocent as children of God when we pursue this attitude. We shine as lights to them, Paul says. We hold out the word of life to the world with hearts that can testify to the power of that world. I know it's late. Try to hang with me. I'm almost done. When we live this way, because this is coming back to this John 17 picture that the world is convicted by our love for each other. Paul's saying it right here in, 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 in the glorious effect. Look at that. He says, you hold out the word of life to the world. You look innocent. You look blameless. So it's not just what you're saying to them. It's your life, your character that is like, wow, there's integrity here. Like they're walking this talk. Our testimony is not shallow because it's backed up by our heart. Don't don't you want that for our church? Don't you want that for Jesus? Don't you want that for your own life? Don't you just want your life to be like that? That what you say to people about Jesus, it's backed up by the way they feel like you're kind and tender and careful. Oh, I want that. And I feel so far from it. But this is John 17. This is the prayer. It's not just Paul's commands. It's what Jesus prayed for us. Our oneness and love and truth convincing the world that he did send Jesus. When we move towards this, we're working towards the prayers of the Son of God for us. I mean, that's also kind of encouraging, right? Finally, the end. The glorious miracle. The rest of this chapter, I'm going to buy it quickly, is a stunning real life picture of what this really looks like. Like not just, you will look like blameless innocent children. Look at how these people look. Verse 17. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Go back one. That's it. Look at Paul. He's rejoicing. He's in prison. He's got scars and lacerations on his back that would look really ugly to us from the whippings he's gotten. Like we, we would look at Paul's back and probably be like, oh. And he's in jail. Alone. And many of his friends have abandoned him. And look at him. Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Look at what God is doing in me, in my heart. Look at what he saved me from. And I love you so much. You should rejoice because I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing because of you and your faith. So be happy, because I'm happy about what's happening to you. And then look at Timothy. 
Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. There's gold in here. Listen, there's gold. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Follow this. Timothy is unique in that he will be genuinely concerned for them, passionately, genuinely, really concerned for them. He's not like the others who only seek their own interests. They don't seek the interests of Jesus Christ. Whose interests does Timothy seek? Jesus' interests. What do Jesus' interests look like? Genuine concern for you. Don't miss that. Timothy's interests are those of Jesus Christ. Timothy has Jesus' interests at heart. And what are those interests? Genuine concern for your welfare. Do you believe that about Jesus this morning that right now he is genuinely concerned for your welfare? What do we remind ourselves so often? What is Jesus doing right now at the Father's hand? Is he eating grapes and, and relaxing by the pool and got headphones on with the most beautiful music imaginable and just being like, so glad that was over. <laughs> what is he doing? What's he doing right now? He's interceding for you right now. And then Epaphroditus. I've thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. I promise you we're wrapping up here. <laughs> your messenger, Mr. Many, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He's been longing for you all. He's been distressed because he heard you were ill or he, he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Epaphroditus gets so sick, he almost dies. Paul, who loved Jesus more than any of us, most very likely, loved people so deeply that he would have been crushed by losing his friend that he loved. Christians are not supposed to be robots who are unaffected by dear friends' trufferings. But what does Epaphroditus do when he gets better? He becomes worried because he knows they're worried about him. And they don't know how he's doing. So he's worried about their being worried. <laughs> and he wants, and he's worried about them being worried because he wants them to be able to rejoice. So he's gonna go see them so they can rejoice. He got deathly ill and his concern when he gets out of bed is, oh man, they're worried about me. I need to go, sh I need to go make myself known to them so they aren't so freaked out and scared. I want them to rejoice. And then Paul says, man, I want him to go too because I'm anxious for you guys. I want you to know how well he's doing. So I'm gonna send him because I'm worried about you. There's just so much tenderness and affection and concern and love and I, I, I wish we could, I probably should have made this whole next week's sermon but, but these folks are crazy about each other. Like they really are interested in each other. They really care about each other. Like you can't get through that last few sentences and look at Timothy and Paul and, and not just be like, wow, these people aren't just interested in a church where people come and go on a Sunday, you know, and just show up and listen to a message and go home. 
Like, it would be better if we shut that down, I really think, like, and found ways to get you good teaching, but poured all our energies into, like, how do we really know about how each other's doing and really keep up with that and really care about each other and really stare after each other? I hope there's a way that we can do both things. But that's, that's, that's what Christianity is really to be. It's a corporate thing. Not corporate because 300 people got in a room and heard somebody and went home. Corporate because they all just care about each other. They're devoted to each other. They're concerned about each other. We taste that, don't we? In small groups, we, we taste it. It's not like it's completely absent. You know, I don't wanna like make a straw man out of this. So many of you are deeply loving and concerned. More than me. But let's be provoked that this really is what God wants and he wants it more and more and more. Remember, he's telling the Philippians, Paul says, you do this already. Do it more. I won't do it more. So three quick applications. Number one, see and want. See and want. Do we see this as beautiful? So much so that we want it. If you don't see this as beautiful, stop right there and pay attention. You are numb. If you don't see this as beautiful and you're in this room looking at this and it doesn't really move you, there's a problem. You are, either I just did a really bad job preaching, which is possible, or, or you are numb. You are, you are in serious spiritual sickness as a believer. You, or you might not know what it really means to believe and be saved. So if you're having trouble caring about this, that should provoke you. You, you should, whether it's my preaching is another issue, right? But, but keep your eyes on this chapter and ask God for help to help you see how beautiful it is again. Because if you're his, you have seen this and you have loved this this kind of love, this kind of other-centeredness. Ask him to help you see this Jesus, love this Jesus, trust this Jesus, want to be like this Jesus. Ask him to help you see that this is truly the pathway to joy. That yes, you will be sorrowful. Jesus was sorrowful sometimes, but he was, I believe, except at the prospect of receiving the Father's cup of wrath for our sins, I think Jesus was the most deeply joyful person in his 33 years on earth. Like truly fulfilled deeply, unfettered, joy and love with the Father. Paul said he was suffering, yet always, what? Rejoicing. This, this laying our lives on for it is a call to joy. It is a fulfilling call to joy. Jesus will make it a joy-giving experience as we raise the, the sail to our mast as the Holy Spirit blows into this. So keep meditating on this picture until it's beautiful to you again or maybe for the first time, and talk to me about that if you need help with that. Two, ask and believe. God deeply wants to help us with this. He prayed on the night he was betrayed for this specific thing, that we would be united in love around him towards each other, that we would love each other by laying our lives down for each other. This is name it, claim it time. (laughs) You know, private jets, perfect health, that is bad, name it, claim it. This is great, name it, claim it. God, give us your heart for each other. You prayed for that. Give it to us. Let's take this picture of Jesus and pray it. Let's ask God to make it a reality. And remember, this kind of prayer, it's a prayer to be able to suffer for one another. And so it will often involve more prayer. The prayer of crying out when the suffering is ouchy. And and it, it, it can be very little things. You know, yesterday I was meditating on this and I got up in the morning, I think it was either yesterday or Friday, and I just wanted to sleep longer. And I knew Jen was downstairs with the kids. And I'm just like, I know my wife loves me. She's always trying to give me time to catch up on my rest all the time. But I, I was like, 
but is that the best for her? And so, but what do I do? God, I'm so tired. I want to sleep so bad. So I, I just, I, did, I was suffering, tension. What do I do? I went to his throne of grace and mercy to find out, God, give me grace to know what to do right now. I want to sleep, but I want to love you and follow you and care for my wife. What do I do? And I had the most miraculous thought that had not entered my mind. As I went to his throne in grace and mercy, I heard the most miraculous words. Ask her. <laughs> Ask her if it would be okay or if she needs your help. So I asked her, and she said it would be okay. So I slept a little bit longer. She said it would be fine. But that kind of work will require you suffering sometimes and going to God to help you through that, you know? Um, he gave me the heart to want to ask her, you know? Instead of close my eyes. So, let's ask and believe. I, I'm trying to think, should we pray this prayer every Sunday for a few months? I, I've turned it into a little prayer at the end. Let me know your thoughts on that if we want to make a little mini liturgical move and pray together this prayer. I'll pray it at the end and you can think about it afterwards. Lastly, commit and pursue. Commit and pursue. This is conformation to the image of Christ. This is what we were saved for. Let's commit to this. There's no other goal God has greater for us than this. This is God's goal for us. This is what he died to bring us. So let's pursue this. Like, move closer to this. Try to step into this. Wherever you are now, at home, at work, in ministry, in care group, at, at, with your neighbor's yard, in a fight about a fence. <laughs> We're talking about, you know, where, wherever you are, move to push away conceit and vain ambition and regard the other person more important. And, and fight in that moment by going to the throne of grace and mercy in that moment. You will have to fight, like I said. There will be doubt, there will be confusion, there will be fear, there will be trembling. Every day it's a battle to lay our lives down. But he will be up to it. He's up to it. This is what he died for. It's what he died to give us. Let me pray and we'll, we'll go home. Thank you guys for bearing with me so long. I wish I could preach quicker. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, help us bring you joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. May we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but Lord, by your grace, may we in humility count each other more significant than ourselves. Help us, Lord, each of us to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of each other. Help us have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Help us have this mind, which already is ours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that it, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
Therefore, Lord, help us work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is you who works in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, this mindset is already ours in Christ Jesus. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.